0: So Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29 is like Genesis chapter 28 in that it follows directly on the heels of the previous chapter. Chapter 27 was the catalyst for the events that we're told of in our chapter today. Isaac believing that his time was about up and that he was stubbornly at the same time sticking to the desire to give the blessing of his father to his firstborn son Esau. Had he been willing to obey the clear word of God to him and Rebekah, before Esau and Jacob were born, none of these events would have taken place. He could have spared himself and his family years of pain and suffering if he, would have had, if he would have, from the very beginning, just told the boys the truth, that the older was going to serve the younger, that Jacob was to have the birthright and the blessing. Esau may have still resented Jacob. But Rebekah would never have had to deceive her husband and Jacob would not have had to barter with his brother for that which was his by the preordained will of God. But nevertheless, Isaac did not obey the Lord until he had been deceived by Jacob. And by then the damage was already done. And the events that bring about our chapter have already been set in motion. Isaac was unwilling to submit to the Lord in blessing the younger son. And he has the scars to show for his willful disobedience now. But not only was he affected by it, not only was it costly to him, it also affected and was costly to his family as well. The events of chapter 26, they they were given to us to reveal how God had used natural circumstances as a tool to bring this wayward son Isaac in line with his will first through a famine, then through years of strife with the locals, and then the physical exertion required to dig well after well in the constant search for water for his people. And this, that was the labor of love for Isaac, that Isaac had caring for his family and for those that were under his care. And it was the labor of love from the Lord to him as well. The Lord using that famine and then the locals and even blessing Isaac more and more with flocks and herds and slaves that drove him to the end of himself until he was able to see the Lord for who he is, who would become the fear of Isaac during this time. And still, he still refused to obey that which he will in the end obey And it cost him his family. Saints, I admonished you last week. Submit. I told you that in your struggle with the Lord, you will never win. Because he will never tap out. He will never change his mind. He will never bend the rules for you. He will have his way. And you will obey his command. And you will bring glory to his name. But the question that you need to ask yourself is this How much pain? How much suffering? How many broken relationships and lost jobs will it take for you to go through till you finally submit and obey? You see, God isn't concerned about your personal comfort, He's not concerned with you entering heaven with both eyes or both legs. He knows that if it costs you an eye or the loss of one or both of your limbs, perhaps the loss of your family, your friends, everything that you have ending up on this street, if it costs you all of that for you to finally come to the end of yourself and obey his will, he's good with that. Because that which is important to him, that is secure. That is your soul. Your body, he's going to give you a new one of those. So you go ahead and sacrifice this one on the altar to self. God is good with that. Because you will bring glory to him through your pain and suffering, through your selfishness, through the pain and heartbreak, as your life is used as a classic example of how not to live. And then in the end, you finally submit, you finally tap out, you finally give in. And this isn't just the Old Testament God that demands obedience. See, there's this time in the life of Christ when the disciples came to Jesus showing off their humanity. In Matthew chapter 18, we read, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You should notice something right off about that question that they asked. These men were so self-assured, they knew, We're in. And not only are we in, but we are at the top of the class. We are the leaders in heaven, the kingdom of heaven, whatever that is. But Jesus knew these men. He knew the issue that they were dealing with. And he desired to redirect their attention. So he gave them a perfect example for an answer. Verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be clear, Jesus did not say you must have childlike faith. That term, childlike faith, that's not found in the Bible. What he does as these grown arrogant and full of themselves men stood around asking themselves which one of them was the best what he does is he goes and he finds an innocent trusting and compliant little child and he stands that child in their midst for them to look down on and then he tells them something that can be completely misconstrued he says that unless you turn and become like a child you can't enter the kingdom of God In fact, we're told in Luke and Mark that he says that unless you turn and become like a child, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But these men, they were so assured that they were in, that they were living the dream. And then Jesus tells them, you're not. He then goes on. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And again, a couple of things. As I said, that term childlike faith is not found in the Bible. And when Jesus was talking to this man at this time, faith wasn't even an issue at hand. The issue was submission. It was obedience to him. And secondly, that term kingdom of heaven, it doesn't refer to us entering heaven when we die. Just do a search concerning that term. Kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, and you will see that Jesus consistently states that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is in our midst. It's all around us. In a nutshell, the kingdom of heaven, which, like I said, is the same as the kingdom of God, can be best explained by Romans 14 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit. It's submission. It's living in obedience to the word of God. And what Jesus meant to demonstrate to the disciples is that to experience life, true life in him, here, now, in this realm, you must be like a child. What did he mean by that? What were the characteristics that Jesus was pointing to, pointing out to these men in this child? Characteristics like tenderness of conscience, Openness about emotions and feelings, creativity, imagination, wonder, awe, joy, eternal hope, playfulness and humor, trust, easy forgiveness, undying love, boundless exuberance, always thinking the best about life and other people, being willing to learn and grow. In short, children listen to their parents and children learn from the actions of their parents. They obey their parents. They do as their parents instruct them, and they trust their parents. And it's when we are willing to trust Christ as a child, to live with our blinders on, not worrying about what other people think about us, it's then that we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. But this isn't the reality of most men. More often than not, this isn't the reality of you and me either. We don't act like a child. We don't watch as our father does and then mimic his actions. We, we watch as he provides everything that we need to survive. Food, shelter, air, a body. And then he gives us love. And then he gives us a body that actually functions. He gives us a job to use the gifts that he has given us at. He gives us above and beyond our needs and material possessions. And we, we in our grown-up actions, we don't mimic him. We don't obey and give. We hang on to and disobey. We really aren't too interested in the kingdom of heaven. We, we think that that coming kingdom, that that is all that God saved us for and not his kingdom here and now. And today's chapter, chapter 29, is another chapter that demonstrates this reality to us. The lives of Isaac and Jacob, they followed the same pattern. God reveals himself to that man, reveals, calls him as his own, tells him that you're redeemed, and then promises to never leave and forsake him. And then that man disobeys and doesn't do as he's commanded. And then... We're given the dumpster fire that is their life until they finally do obey. Chapter 25 through 27 focuses on Isaac. In chapter 25, verse 23, we read, Yahweh said to her, Rebekah, Isaac's wife, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And then we're given the dumpster fire of their lives until they finally obey in chapter 27, verses 28 through 29. When we hear Isaac finally saying, Now may God give you the dew of heaven, and the fatness of the earth, and the abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. And then in chapter 28, verses 14 and 15, God reveals himself to Jacob and tells him, I am Yahweh, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your seed. And your seed will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not forsake you until I have done that which I have promised to you. And upon hearing this from God, Jacob replies to him, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey on which I'm going <coughs> excuse me, and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh will be my God. Now this stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Verses 20 through 22. And now, now we are given the privilege of watching Jacob throw fuel into that dumpster of his life. Grab gallons of gasoline. And then while standing much too close to that dumpster, strike that match and throw it into that dumpster and light it on fire. And this is the will of God for this man. This this is the love of God towards him. Saints, as we move through the next few chapters, I'm going to come back to a single question that I'm going to pose to all of us over and over again. How much of a dumpster fire does your life have to become for you to finally submit and obey? How many scars? Ruined relationships do you have to collect before you finally realize that you are not going to win. Until you finally realize that you have already won. You won the moment that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Long before you were ever born. You won without doing anything. And this life, this thing that we call life, this is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God that we live in because we are in him. And it is here that we walk in the kingdom of heaven. And we do this through childlike obedience. And you might be asking yourself, why why did God deal so harshly with Jacob since it was the willful disobedience of his father that was the catalyst for the dissension within that family? While that is truth, And Isaac was disobedient to the word of the Lord, and the Lord would have his way. Jacob still had the ability to not connive, to not lie, to not go along with his mom's plan. And God's will still would have been accomplished. Jacob was responsible for Jacob. You can't use other people for your life. Jacob's sin was his own. And since he is the chosen son of God, we are given the privilege of watching as the Lord conforms this man more into the image of his son through pain and suffering as he works out the old man of Jacob. So let's get into today's verses. We're told at the beginning of chapter 28, Isaac blesses Jacob and sends him to Rebekah's family to take a wife. Oddly enough, that mirrors how he came to to have his wife, Rebekah. Because we're told back in chapter 24 that Abraham sent his most trusted slave to Rebekah's family to find a wife for Isaac. And now Isaac has sent Jacob, for the same reason, to the same area. And just like those many years earlier, God sovereignly directs Jacob, just as he did the slave of Abraham with both of them arriving in that region and coming to a well. But there's some very marked differences between the two men, though. The first being that it was the groom now that is sent and not a slave. And the second, which is actually a very big deal, but which is never even talked about, is that while Abraham sent his slave to get a bride for Isaac, he did so by loading down ten camels with lots of choice stuff and sending along other men with him. But when Jacob is sent away, he's either sent away empty-handed and alone, or he was sent away with goods to buy a wife with, and those goods were either flittered away or stolen. But either way, when the slave of Abraham shows up at the well, he finds Rebekah, and he has gifts to give to her. When Jacob shows up at the well, he's got nothing to give for a wife. And there's another very important contrast that is made between the chosen son of Jacob and that faithful slave of Abraham. First, let's read the account from today, verses 1 through 11. Then Jacob took up his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east, and he looked, and behold, the well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they gave water to the flocks to drink. Now the stone in the mouth of the well was large, and all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and give water to the sheep to drink and return the stone back to its place on the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know, the, uh, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with them? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Give water to the sheep to drink and go pasture them. But they said, we can't until all the flocks are gathered. And they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we give to water to the sheep to drink. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now it happened when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and gave water to the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, to drink. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, for a d- very domesticated man, Jacob sure has a handle on how livestock are handled and taken care of. And that he was able to roll that stone away by himself, he speak, that speaks of a strength that doesn't come from staying in a house all day long. Because those shepherds didn't, weren't just hanging around for no reason at all. Because it took a number of them to working together to be able to roll away a stone over a well like that. But Jacob does it by himself. But what about that other encounter? the one between that happened with the slave of Abraham. Listen to the account of the slave of Abraham when he came to that land. Then the slave took ten camels from the camels of his master, and he went along with all kinds of good things of his master's in his hand. So he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, please cause this to happen before me today and show loving kindness to my, my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may, I, I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will give water to your camels to drink also. May she be the one whom you have decided for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, was coming out with a jar on her shoulder. Now as she was a young woman, was very beautiful in appearance, a virgin, and no man had known her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. As Genesis chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. So both men are sent to the same area for the same purpose. One was sent with an entourage and came well-equipped. The other was sent alone, came empty-handed. But we're told that one of them stopped on the outskirts of town and prayed to God for success. The other one, we're never told that he ever prays. And the one that prayed, that stopped before entering the town, the one that acknowledged his dependence on the Lord, he reacts much differently when it may becomes apparent to him that God through has shown divine providence and directed him specifically to the family of Nahor, the slave of Abraham. Upon hearing that Rebekah was the daughter of Nahor and realizing that the Lord had actually answered his prayer for success, he reacts much different than Jacob did here in our chapter. We're told there in chapter 24, Then the man bowed low and worshipped Yahweh, and he said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his his truth toward my master. As for me, Yahweh has guided me in the way to my house of my master's brothers. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. The The slave prayed, relied upon God, Jacob is never told of praying or even acknowledging that God had sovereignly directed him specifically to the place where his relatives were and even has brought his future wife out to meet him. What he does instead was in his own strength he moved that rock away presumably trying to impress Rachel with his feats of strength. He was not reliant upon God. He thought I got this. I did this. It was my sense of direction that got me here. It was my cunning and endurance that had brought me this far. But make no mistake about it, Jacob was God's man. He was the chosen son, and he would be the one that would inherit all that his father had, inherit the blessing that God had given to his grandfather Abraham. No matter his actions, that's not going to change. He's not in jeopardy of losing his salvation. That, that was secure in the one who had already appeared to him in that dream in Bethel. But what would have to be worked out of him was his reliance on himself. He didn't yet see that the promises that God had made to him in Bethel, that they were truth that God was the reason for all things, that he was the one that had sovereignly directed all things in life, and that Jacob was not the master of his own destiny. And he's about to meet the instrument that, Lord, that the Lord will use in going to break himself, of himself. The father of Rachel, the brother of Rebecca, old Uncle Laban, but before we get to that arrangement that brings about Jacob's seven years of service, we need to deal with Uncle Laban, verses 13 and 14. So it happened that when Laban heard the report of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him, and he embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he recounted to Laban all these things. as Jacob recounting to Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with them one month. Now remember, it was Laban that greeted that slave of Abraham when he showed up. But in that encounter, it was only after seeing the rings on the fingers of Rebecca and the bracelets on her arm that he gets excited about that visitor. And we're never told just how much of the stuff that was loaded on those camels actually stayed with old Uncle Laban when, Rebe- when Rebecca left. But now, when he hears that the son of Isaac, the son of his sister Rebecca, is on the scene, He runs out to embrace this man. And it would be really nice to think that Laban was actually glad to see him. That meeting a relative of his was really important to him. It would be nice to think that. But nothing of what we're ever told of Laban ever indicates that he cares for anything other than himself. But imagine his surprise when he runs out to meet old Jacob And there are no camels. There's no treasure. It's just a single man sitting by a well. And it's only after hearing why Jacob was sent there, the son who has the birthright of Isaac and the blessings of the Lord, the son who was specifically told to go to Laban and marry one of his daughters. And after a month goes by, where Laban sees that Jacob is a hardworking man and that he's making him money, it's then that he approaches Jacob, verses 15 through 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, "Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be?" <clears throat> now, we can actually think that the 7 years of service to Laban, that that was the idea of Jacob. Because Jacob sure thinks that's his idea. But the manner in which these events are given to us, Laban hearing the account of Jacob, knowing why he was there, and they had nothing for a dowry, and then seeing that he's a good worker and he's making Laban money, it was in this context that he approached Jacob. Now Laban had two daughters, as we're told in verse 16. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and beautiful in appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I'll serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than give her to another man. Sure, stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they were in his sight, but a few days because of his love for her. Laban says to Jacob, Hey, I desire to be fair with you. You shouldn't work for me for free. So what do I have that you might want? What's your wage going to be? Name your terms. And when Jacob heard that, he's like, ah, I understand this game. This is the same game that I played with God in our last chapter. That, one, that time when he, made, when he played, let's make a deal with God. And now Laban wants to play, let's make a deal with me. The heel snatcher thinks that I've won the lottery here. And he's going to take advantage of this guy. And he's going to get that which he could not get, Rachel. So he sells himself into indentured servitude for seven years for her. And there are multiple levels of wrong in these verses. Laban should not... Have told, or I'm sorry, Laban should have told Jacob that the older sister had to be married first. He should have never allowed his daughter to be sold on time. He should have told Jacob, go back home and bring a dowry price because the dowry price for a woman was much more than just money given. It was a commitment between two families, it was an investment in the future of both of these families. And Jacob didn't have a dowry price. And since he was afraid to go back home because of Esau, he knew he couldn't get a dowry price for the thing that he wanted. So he bartered with the thing that he had, his life. And seven years of labor, that's a long time to give for a dowry, which is more than likely why Jacob named that time span. He, was, he named that time span hoping that in the excess of it would entice Laban to say yes which he does. But what Laban should have done, he should have been generous with this young man who is going to be his son-in-law. He should have been generous with his daughter as well, giving her much more than just a maid when she's finally auctioned off. But as we're told in verse 20, Jacob loved Rachel. And because of this, those seven years seem like nothing. And there is something, though, very positive about about Jacob and Rachel that we can learn through these verses. They kept themselves pure for seven years. They were married at that point. They were betrothed. They were, in essence, like I said, married at that point. This was what the barter between Jacob and Laban had accomplished. And Jacob loved Rachel very much. He was attracted to her, and they lived in very close proximity to each other, even probably working together alone with the flocks in the field for long periods of time. But they kept themselves pure. They honored, they honored that covenant of marriage, which brings us to verses 21 through 25. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. And Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it happened in the evening that he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him. And Jacob went into her. And Laban also gave his servant woman Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a servant woman. Now it happened in the morning that behold, it's Leah. And he said to Laban, Jacob said to Laban, What is it you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? The outrage of Jacob is much more than just finding out in the morning that the woman who was given to him was not the woman that he loved. Not only had Jacob I'm sorry, not only had Laban deceived Jacob, he has now put him into a position that there's no easy or right way out of. Jacob was betrothed to Rachel. He was married to Rachel. And now, now he wakes up in the morning and he's find out that he's gone through a marriage ceremony and even consummated that marriage with the wife of his sister. I'm sorry, the sister of his wife. And he had no legal, brown, no legal grounds to back out of that marriage with Leah. She had been chased. And he had, on his own volition, consummated that marriage. And he couldn't back out of the marriage of Rachel either. She hadn't done anything wrong. This man's in a pickle. Jacob was known to be a deceiver, and he willingly had dished out his deceit before. His family members had been the ones that he dished out that deceit to. First his brother and then his father, but now old Uncle Laban. He's proven that he, Jacob, was just playing checkers with a man who was a master at chess, and he had given him a bitter taste of his own medicine. And Laban said, It's not the practice in our place to give the younger before the firstborn. Sorry for your luck. Fulfill the week of this one, and we'll give you the other also for the service which wish you will serve me another seven years. And Jacob did and fulfilled her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as well as for his wife. And Laban also gave his servant woman Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a servant woman. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. And they lived happily ever after. Except there's four more verses in this chapter. Four more verses that are really hard to comprehend, hard to understand. Verses 31 through 34. And Yahweh saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, Because Yahweh has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because Yahweh has heard that I was unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, she named him Levi, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise Yahweh. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Why would God allow all this to happen? I mean, you have to feel sorry for Leah, because it's evident that Jacob was just using her. He didn't adore her like he did Rachel. And she knew it. How, how is this fair? We who hold to the sovereignty of God know that this is not an accident. This is not happening by chance. Why is this fair? Why, why would God choose this life for Leah? Is it possible that this is just how he deals with those that he doesn't care about? Those that are not of him? And yet judging by how he acted toward her, in hearing her and allowing her to conceive, and then bearing sons, and then by her reaction and the names by which she chose those sons to be called. Reuben, which literally means behold a son. And then when the revelation that Jacob had an heir When that doesn't move him to love her, and then she bears a second son, she names him Simeon, which means to be heard. And it wasn't Jacob who she is acknowledging is hearing her. This isn't why she named her second son Simeon. She knew that the Lord was not only with her, but also that he heard her. Son number three, Levi, means joined, like joined in harmony. Perhaps this was the hope for her and her husband, but that wasn't to be. So when son number four comes along, she names him Judah. And by the time son number four comes along, she's no longer looking to Jacob for her fulfillment, which is why she can name her fourth son Praise or Thanksgiving, which is exactly what we hear her doing in verse 35. And then the Lord closes her womb. Again, why does all this happen? What are we supposed to gain from all of this? Because you're sitting there thinking in yourself, in your mind, you're looking for a place to put this account in one of those God boxes that you have. You keep mentally looking for which one of those God boxes that you have created. You keep analyzing them, trying to figure out where this account is supposed to fit into which one of those boxes it's supposed to go into. And it just won't fit. Because those things that we are confident that God would never condone have occurred here. A deceiving man, a man deceived, forced to marry two women, but not forced to have relations with both of them. And yet, although he does not love one of them, he continues having relations with her. And the Lord blesses this man with sons. And he blesses that woman who is taken advantage of by this deceiver. And this doesn't commute or compute to us. None of this is how we picture God being. We, we desire in our flesh, we desire to defend God, saying he has nothing to do with this account. And in doing so, we're not defending him, we're defining him. We think that we actually need to defend him. That from the accusation that he's not fair. And this isn't new and it's not novel because we humans, we try to defend God all the time. We try to defend him in election and predestination to humans, saying that, saying that claiming that humans have to make the choice to be of him. Otherwise, it's not fair. We, we think in our minds that a God that would willingly create people and have, and have them have no choice to be of him, that this is not a loving God. That's not the God that we know. That's not the God that we love. We think that we need to defend him against the actions of humans, those actions that, of those humans that he's chosen. You know, like the polygamy of, of David, who wasn't tricked into it, but willfully chose to marry more than one woman, and even willfully chose the wife of another man. We we think that we need to defend him against the evil actions of men, saying that he is sovereign, but that he has nothing to do with the willful sins of humans. We take comfort in being able to define God in this manner. But there's a truth found in these last four verses that we cannot protect God from. He willingly and purposefully opened the womb of Leah and then closed it again. He did this. She didn't. He did this. He's the one who is responsible for the first four sons of Jacob to be born by a woman that was sold to an unloving man. And then he is the one that closes the womb of Leah, which will bring about the introduction of more women into this dumpster fire of a marriage. Since there is an uncomfortable truth that we are all going to have to come to terms with, God is not concerned about you being able to comfortably define Him. God is for God. And because of this, He is going to act as He knows is right. And we think that we understand. Him. We think that we understand righteousness, holiness. We give them human words to describe and define them, saying righteousness is being morally upright and justifiable. Holiness means morally pure. And yet God defines righteousness as something more than just ethical conduct. He declared Adam and Eve righteous when he created them and called them good. They were righteous, not because of their actions, but because they were in him. And holiness is something that we are called to live, as we're told in 1 Peter 1. And we think that us living on our own reliance, on a set of do's and don'ts, that makes us holy. We don't understand that God is the definition of holiness, that he is holy, and because of him, Because of him, we are in him. And because of that, we are holy. We will not become holy. But God cannot be defined by humans. Listen to this truth as told to us in Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 11. God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they don't return without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Saints, there's something that we would do well to learn and understand. The God that we serve, the God that we have as our Savior, he's not a respecter of men. He has one purpose in all this universe, and that is to bring glory to himself. But what does this mean for us? Why are we given chapters such as this? Why why would God choose the lion of his salvation to be the lion of the tribe of Judah? The fourth son of a woman that is not loved. Why, Why would God not protect his lineage, make his lineage pure, starting from Adam all the way to Jesus? Because he knows something about us that we don't know. He knows the fallen state of our heart. He knows that nothing good dwells inside of us, outside of him. He knows this to be the reality of all people. And he knows that he, that he is the best gift that any human can ever be given. And that he, he, saints listen to this, he, he makes everything, all things, Anything that could ever happen to you in this fallen world, all the hard things, the wrong things, he giving himself to you is much better, of much more value than all of this. And he gives us accounts like this to show us something more about ourselves that we are fully corrupt, not partially corrupt, and we are respecters of men. We desire to make God into our version of him, a a version where people of him are good. We desire to use God to make people good, not holy and saved. We want to use people. As the standard by which God is defined. Again, like I said, we want to actually think that the salvation of God is primarily to make bad people good instead of making dead people alive. And as proof of this, when we read this account, we idolize the love that is told to us in it, but we idolize the wrong love. We overlook the love of God in the life of Jacob and Leah, and instead we swoon over the love of Jacob for Rachel, for Rachel. We romanticize that love. We idolize that love. We compare our love for another person with this love. And we use the labor of love that Jacob demonstrated for Rachel as a fodder for our lives. We, in our pride and prejudice and emotionalism, desire to have someone love me just like Jacob did Rachel, would be willing to serve seven years for me. And we we fail to see the true labor of love that is behind all the actions of this account, that drives this account, that everything in this account points to. We idolize people and we make God into our image, saying that he has nothing to do with the lives of these people. Oh, he just uses these people. He's going to use their sins, spinning his purposes around those sins to bring about his purposes, but he's not actively involved in their lives. And yet, he was active in the life of Leah. He caused her to conceive and then closed her womb. Again, he did this. He's active in her life. He wasn't standing on the sideline watching as the game of life happened, and in And in front of him, every once in a while, he would just take a piece of the game and move it, change things up to bring them back into a path that he's got laid out. He willfully and purposefully chose to have his son come from the lineage of the fourth son of an unloved woman. So what am I implying? You're asking yourself, what are you implying, David? Are you saying, are you implying that God is the author of sin? Not at all. I will stand firmly on the truth of God's word as put forth in the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 3, which says, From all eternity God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside of him. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. And this decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working of contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. What I'm admonishing you to do is this. Understand, you're not going to be able to define God. Stop trying to do that. And instead, marvel at the God of your salvation. Wonder at the labor of love that was demonstrated to you in all creation in the Son of God, in His propitiation for your sin. And in wondering in that love, determine to know more about this amazing God, the one that loves you, The one that loves you to hell and back. He will not be defined by you, but he will be glorified in you. And he has saved you from his wrath. And he desires that you come to know him as he truly is. And he will use your willful disobedience to allow your life to be a dumpster fire in order that his perfect plan happens. What I'm asking you to do is that which I am trying to do. Forget what we think that we know about how God should be. And determined to steadfastly ask him to reveal himself as he is. God, eternal, immutable, unchangeable, unimaginable. The God that created all that is. This God is the one who has set his love on you. And he's given his son for you. And he now lives inside of you in his Holy Spirit. And we are created in his image. But he's not created in ours. And now we are in Christ. Because of Christ. And even for Christ. Grab your Bibles real fast. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, I I want you to see the love of God, this God that is amazing. I want you to see this love that he has for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And again, that is not a process. It's already happened. You've already been sanctified in the blood of Christ. And because of this, you are commanded to act in and by that sanctification, which Paul goes on to tell us. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of the lust like the Gentiles who, don't, Gentiles who don't know God, and that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And here, here is that reality that happens, that the Lord uses sin in our life to slough off more and more of our dead, rotting, old corpse of a man. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So, If he has called you, if, if you have heard his voice and responded to that voice, then you have been made holy. And for this reason, you're told to act like it, which is how Paul ends this true statement. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is the will of God for you. For you to walk in his holiness. For you to know him as he is. And you will fulfill his will. But again, I have to ask you that question. How many scars do you have to carry to do this? God gives us the dumpster fire of these people's lives in the Bible. And then, in the church, he will allow us to witness the dumpster fire of the lives of other people around us. And even sometimes our own lives. And he does this to reveal the reality that we should not and we cannot be respecters of men. That his salvation is eternal. It's heavenly. It's a precious gift. And it's ours now. And it's being worked out in us now. And when we come to sections of Scripture like ours from today, when we're we're desiring to protect the character of God to humans, that we finally learn to memorize and know Deuteronomy 29.29. The answer to the things of God that run contrary to what we think that he should be like. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of the law. Saints, we must use the word of God. Empowered through the spirit of God, To reveal the reality of God. That God that saved us. That has redeemed us. Has already sanctified us. And has already made us holy. And one day. Because he has done those things. He will glorify us. He will. But it's our time here. Now. That we get to learn of him. In a greater way, as we walk by faith. Saints, God is going to cause you consternation in your walk with him. He's going to do things in your life, in the lives of people around you that is going to run that is going to run contrary to what you think that God should be like. He will. Saints, we would do well to instead of saying, I will never, God would never, that we would just do well to say, God has done, and the will of the Lord shall be done. Let's pray.